Welcome to the Trauma Resonance Resilience podcast and I'm your host Lisa Cherry and I am as always very excited Um, not least because it's been ages since I did a podcast where it feels like ages so it's really really good to be here and today so what's going on today today With a background of 24 years in teaching, education and family support services, with almost 20 of those in Leeds, and I know that anyone who's listening in Leeds will be going whoop whoop because that's what Leeds is like. Today's guest is at the start of her seventh academic year as the virtual school head in Leeds with her tenure as the chair of the National Association of Virtual School Heads colliding with the global pandemic. We will so get into that. It's her dream job, the role of virtual school head teacher, uh, which arose, she said, within an awakening to the impact of understanding, starting to understand early relational loss and trauma in the context of children's learning and education. Please give a warm welcome to Jancis, Andrew. (laughs) Thank you, Lisa. That is the best intro I have ever had. (laughs) I'm not sure I've had many, but that's pretty much set the benchmark very high. Thank you. And what a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's so lovely to have you here, Jancis. And I think haven't we sort of known each other really for quite a few years now our paths have met at various conferences the unforgettable meeting was at a conference where there was a very temporary minister for children and families who was speaking about and speaking to the care leaver experience um, in a room where there were personal advisors, virtual school heads, care experience people. Um, and I think uh, we did connect there and then, in part through a sense of horror that somebody spoke in a way that was so far removed from the experience both in life and profession that was in that in that room. But yeah, and that journey kind of connections carried on face to face and through social media and through work you've done in, in Leeds as well um, with me and with other colleagues in social care. So, um, so yeah. So it's really good to be here. I'm so, so glad you invited me. I'd forgotten about him, Janice. Yes, he <laughs> hadn't read the brief. No. If I remember rightly, we were both kind of somehow like holding each other back from speaking. Yes. <laughs> I, I think we wanted to ask, do you know what a care lever is? Yeah. Yes. Has anybody given you a crib sheet about this is what it means to be a young person having been through um, the experience of care? Yeah. Uh, a, sh- a shepherd's crook. Pulling him off the stage was almost required. Yeah. I think technically that may have been what happened, euphemistically speaking. I think so. And I think he was a really big lesson for anyone who stands on a stage that you yeah. actually need to read your stuff. You cannot go into that space without knowing your stuff. And speaking of knowing your stuff, did you like my little segue there? Speaking of knowing your stuff, chances, I'm really, one of the reasons I've asked you to come on the podcast is not just because you're an all-round fantastic human being, but because um, I think lots of people don't understand what the virtual school Mm. 
is I think there are lots of people who think the virtual school is somehow something to do with technology. Yes. So I wondered if you could just explain to people not just what virtual school is, uh, and we'll get more into the nuance of that later, but also how it came about. Uh, what was it that led to uh, the pilot and mm. then led to it being statutory? Yeah, that's such a great place to start. And it's so interesting that the pandemic itself has kind of shone a light on that because all of a sudden people are talking about remote learning, virtual learning, virtual platforms, which is almost a head in the hands moment because we've been battling to get our role understood. And now we have another layer of language to kind of get through so that people can understand who we are and what our role is. So um, I guess that over time um, and previous in previous iterations, local authorities and I'll say that the care system, just for want of a better expression, have known and understood that children who um, have experienced care haven't thrived as well in learning and in education and historically going back for as far as there've been measures um, they've been a group of young people probably most vulnerable to poor um, outcomes in in education so the idea was that um, if you had a single role within a local authority to take a lead on um, systemic partnership approaches to engaging with schools, engaging with services, about collectively addressing those barriers to learning. And the pilot, I think, involved um, around a dozen um, posts and the results really demonstrated that that single local leader connecting up and joining the dots between social care and um, the world of education. I often see my role as being the jam in the sandwich or the equal sign in, in an equation that as of 2014, it became a statutory requirement for every local authority in England to designate um, a leader within the local authority to take on um, that role. So my appointment actually coincided with um, the role becoming statutory. And that idea of bringing two worlds together who didn't necessarily speak the same language from memory, it feels like a long time ago, was the theme, I think, of my responses to through the interview process, that's kind of how I saw my my role. And and I think that that's that remains the case. And what I think we do as virtual school heads is certainly in my world is try to make the system around those young people understand what those barriers are and supporting them to overcome them. And there's support and challenge within that. I'm sure we're going to come on to talk about um, 
the impact of early relational adversity and adverse childhood experiences. But I guess what the virtual school is is not is necessarily a big provider of education, though lots of us do that. It's about having an oversight of every child who's looked after by our authority. Um, the statutory guidance says, and we monitor and track their attendance, their attainment and their progress as if they attended a single school. So put simply, it's about knowing where our young people are going to school, how well that school is meeting their needs and whether they're making um, the best possible progress they can. That sounds really simple when I say it. But it means an interface between um, very, very diverse schools and settings, um, the local authorities, different constructions and configurations are different from every local authority. So there are 150 different ways to be a virtual school head because there are 150 of us. So each of us brings our own experience and our own knowledge to our own local authorities' context. And then we have to somehow then work with what's becoming an ever more complex learning landscape. And I think that's one of our kind of greatest challenges is working in partnership with schools in what's also become a more and more um, pressured environment in terms of how schools are held to account, the agenda for standards um, and the drive for um, outright attainment. So we work very much at the front face, the chalk face, if you like, around of the system around those looked after learners. But we're not, this is, this is where the influence comes in because I don't deploy uh, teachers into those classrooms. I've got to work in partnership with those schools and try to bring them into a place where they can break down some of the old-fashioned uh, preconceptions and notions of what it means to be um, a child um, who's in care and a child who's, who's looked after. And, and more increasingly, what it means to be a child in a school you know, the demand of education, yeah. you know, that's the other battle, isn't it? That there's this notion and this idea about what a child should be, by what age, in what setting, how they should behave, how they should um, respond, yeah. all of that. And, and the two of those things together create a kind of really big challenge, I guess, although it's a spectrum, isn't it? The, you know, schools are a spectrum. And it's interesting what you were saying there about um, not just that it's different, you know, the fact that it's different everywhere, which you'll have a good oversight of now as the chair, mm. but also what that means is that relationships, as always, are key. If you have those good relationships with those schools, good relationships with the teachers that you're working with, with the local authority, then I'm, you know, you're more likely to be able to get some wins for those children and young people. Absolutely. Um I'm going to try and steer clear of talking about leads, but, you know, it's 
I'm trying to work within the context of those restorative behaviors, you know, doing with and, and not to or, or, or for. Um, it can feel uh, really challenging at times. And, and absolutely the pandemic kind of being in a kind of full on crisis mode has really tested those um, relationships. Um, Tell me how. And the pandemic the pandemic brought particularly that's really heightened because we've seen lots of things come to the fore in a much more um prolific way a much more visual way so what are the things that are coming up purely in this context of being in a pandemic um it's transformed how we work and it doesn't matter who i speak to in what context what people are saying is the um, the workload, the volume of work in whatever context, um, any gains from not spending time on a commute or driving be- between meetings and things like that has been completely absorbed, if not more so, into back-to-back meetings, conversations, um, there's there, there there can be um sometimes very few boundaries between shifting from one particular context of a conversation that might be about a very very individual young person that's really focused on their their life experiences and what's working or what's really really difficult for them at the moment to shifting up into another gear where you are hoping that you can uh, influence a group of head teachers who are hanging on by a thread to mm. keeping children you know managing uh, staffing and structures so that they can continue to deliver um, the curriculum that they need to in order for children to to make progress and and that's the it feels that the pace is is utterly relentless and, and frenetic and it doesn't feel that there was a let up. And, and it's really interesting because um, this was reflected nationally that when children, when we went into the first lockdown and the idea that children who were in vulnerable contexts, including those currently looked after, could still continue to access school, in the vast majority of cases, the decision and whether that was located within social work and fostering teams was overwhelmingly to keep children at home and keep them in their care context and not take up that offer. And that was something that was really interesting. And and I want to reflect a young person's comments to their foster carer about that, which I found absolutely fascinating, which was that on the Prime Minister's announcement, if you can cast your mind back to to March, that schools were closed except to those children who were looked after, other children in vulnerable contexts, that one of our young people, the way he processed that was he asked his foster carer why the Prime Minister mustn't care about him because he didn't want him to be safe if he 
if he wanted him to go to school but he didn't want other children to go to school he processed that as why am I different and and I think that's something that really stood out for me was our young people they don't want to be seen to be different and singled out and they felt that to continue to go to school at that time just put a big sign on their head saying hey look at me I must be looked after I must be vulnerable Although, it's very it's like a kind of um it's like the lanyard isn't it yeah and yeah. and I, I had some conversations with you know with um colleagues within the DFE about why you know why was that take up of that offer so low and I think we've got some problems with language because we use this word vulnerable as professionals we use it all the time um and yet what family is ever going to self-identify as as a vulnerable, you know, what who who's going to hear that and think they're talking about me mm. when they say that? And and that was a message that I hope that you know was 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 heard by um the department. And I think it's something we need to to kind of pay attention going back to those restorative behaviors and doing with families. Yeah, we we language like vulnerable is is a barrier to to being able to do something with you know and in partnership with with those families and and certainly with you know those young people who are who are in our care who have got very strong views as to whether or not they should be deemed vulnerable Mm. Um, language has been very very at the forefront really of everything that's going on and it's also of the fourth at the forefront of anything to do with all things care, you know, the language about how you described, how you view things. And so that's quite interesting what happens when those two things come together. You know, for example, keeping everybody in in March was very much about using quite deep high threat language. Yeah. Interesting that the, the shift when they wanted everyone to come back out again and get back to work the language then shifts again uh, but actually we all have different windows of tolerance so some of us took a long time to come out of the high threat mode mm-hmm. depending on what we bring each of us and our own experiences um, so it's been really interesting thinking about language within the pandemic I mean just sort of staying with um, the role of the virtual school really I mean my my view and sense and different papers I've read is that the virtual school has made a huge difference to looked after children. And, and I, I, I'm curious, actually, now if we're in a place where children in need are mm. groups that are having the poor outcomes now and that we've actually made some headway to a degree. Yeah looked after children I mean is that your sense having an overview of the whole country's virtual schools yeah we we've been talking to the DFE about this for a long time um following the findings from the child in need review and then we've had uh, academics and researchers like um David Berridge you know produce um you know uh, a research and an evidence base which kind of says that if we have this focus on children who are already looked after it just it doesn't make sense to not move that focus 
to earlier along that journey. And certainly within my own local authority, um, around just about 80% of children who are currently looked after. And so therefore within my, you know, the context of those I've got that overview for were previously uh, children in need. And I see it personally and within my context that it's got to be an invest to save uh, approach. So working with social care in particular and, and schools around what are the needs of families? When, when we've got a young person, when we have a child who has to have a, a child in need or a child protection plan, um, how do we approach their, their needs around learning in those plans? Because I think they can be quite focused on, on risk and harm and prevention of harm. For me, as the head of the virtual school, can we talk about learning as being as important in those plans and making sure those children are getting access to good quality provision, that the family can support the children get to that provision and that when they're there, their needs are really understood and met. I, I think that if we could do that, move things upstream, so to speak, I think not only could we potentially reduce the need for some children to have to you know move into that 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 you know the next step of care but I think it would definitely make my life as a virtual school head easier because I'd know where those young people I'd know more about their their journey and of course it's a much broader cohort and the scope to kind of broaden how we work in partnership with with schools I, I think that there there is an um a, an, an untapped element there in terms of evidencing to schools the impact on learning if we can galvanize those social workers all those early help practitioners to really understand um how learning can be transformational because that's I think it's where I think, again, coming back to the idea of an equation, if you're to unpick the sort of pedagogy of, of education and learning and social care, surely they're, they're actually coming from entirely the same place, which is people, individuals being able to realise their, their potential. Um, and, it, you know, and it's, it seems to be a place where we don't always get that working really really well that we're actually singing from the same hymn sheet and it's, it goes back to that where we started really which was around some of the barriers I guess and some of the challenges um, and dif difficult conversations that we might have when we're going into different schools and talking to different um, stakeholders in the school kind of experience um, and I think one of the challenges is where we're talking to our colleagues in schools that don't necessarily have an understanding of the impact of the school as relationship. Mm. There's, a, there's a, a disconnect with understanding that you might, 
that for some children, you are the relationship. And it's not a case of an additional relationship or even a relationship with the family. Sometimes you are just the relationship mm. with that child, the safe place. And of course, in the pandemic overnight, that was just shooting. Mm. Um, and that's a difficult conversation. And I've thought a lot about this because I'm, you know, as someone who goes into schools and does training, I want people that I'm speaking with to feel something because that's the only way we can go somewhere. But the challenge is if you're talking about relational poverty, the challenge, of course, is that you're asking people to think about a life without the important relationships in them. Mm. You're asking them to go within themselves and have that moment of thinking about removing the people that love them and care for them so that they can imagine somehow what it might be like to not have those people. That's a really big ask. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for people to understand not having those relationships. And I, I'm always trying to be as creative as possible that isn't too distressing for people so that they can have that kind of sense of understanding of what it is to not have those relationships around you where somebody has your back the whole time. Yeah. And if I think when people do grasp that and they do grasp the role of the school in that child's life, I do think people change. I honestly think when people really know better, so Maya Angelou says when people know better, they do better. I would say when people know, stroke, feel, when they feel that, then there's an opportunity to really understand it. And I think that that's really big, impactful work that takes time and time is something that as you've also said is not something we are in a massive abundance of Hmm. you know really processing and thinking about that stuff and reflecting on it and spending time with those sensations that embodied experience is just not inbuilt into the systems that we have around those children no I mean, it was, it's interesting. Um, I think that you've used the words adversarial growth. And I definitely, and this is, I go a lot on instinct and feelings. And this that's hard. It's hard in a pandemic because lots of my input is, is a, you know, it's been cut off from that. You know, going in and out of schools. Yeah, you, you take in information. You feel things. You get a feel for where where a school is 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 at where they're at in a relationship with an individual young person or where they're kind of at collectively so it's been really hard to to have that feel for where our, our schools are at however what I do think I started to see towards the end of the summer term and so we we'd started to see a little bit of you know young people were starting to to return to school and the appetite for um, the the training that we were starting to put forward um, around, um, you know, the work of people like Barry Carpenter, the recovery curriculum, um, you know, work that that you were doing yourself that, you know, you did with designated teachers. I, I genuinely feel that there is a potential for, for these events to have given people cause to think about 
we, we're not going to ever get to academic recovery if we don't attend to the relational stuff. And it felt like, you know what, this could be um, a real turning point here. And, and it's a message in all the conversations, I think, that the National Association of Virtual School Heads are... Uh, colleagues and partners within um, the, you know, big adoption providers, anybody who's been kind of flying this flag for a long, long time, seen through, often through the lens of children who've experienced care. So because that's so, so linear that, that their relation to, you know, those early childhood experiences. So all of a sudden you've had a universal experience and it feels we could see um, a really massive kind of curve being turned here where um, schools are going, you know what, this is actually making a difference. It will be fascinating to get involved in, you know, finding from some of the schools about whether that recovery curriculum approaching things in that way has realised um, an acceleration in learning and attainment for, for some children potentially where, where there were previous gaps because it's been so universal. It's not been limited to just children who are looked after or just children who were previously looked after. So there's a, a real opportunity, I think, for and, and an appetite for it. I, I think for, for me to have done some of the things that we did very, very quickly, if you think about the pace of, of, of thing, you know, events unfolding back in, you know, May, June, July. Um, and it was one of the opportunities that this these events created, being able to get 50 designated teachers into a virtual space to, to just put that, you know, um, conversation out there. Felt like we, we, we're tapping into something here there's an appetite and there's an opportunity and there is an appetite for schools to to take this up. And I think we really have to, as virtual school heads, be pushing that with the DfE because they, we can only benefit all children and, and young people if we can get schools to to see that that's been impactful to to their whole their whole cohort. And let's not forget, staff well-being is completely embedded in all of these approaches in all of that relational stuff it's never been more evident I think to school leaders how important their, their staff well-being has been because their, their, their staff have never had to cope and you know hopefully we're coming out of this with a vaccine but school teams have never had to manage um, in the way that they have and the pressures they've experienced. I was in a school I, I haven't been into many I've probably been in three times it's not particularly comfortable because of getting staff all into the same room and all that kind of stuff but there was one that I went into and I asked the question I I won't ask this question like this again I learned the hard way which is my life and is part of being a trainer I think (laughs) and I asked the question we were talking about resilience and robustness and well-being and all that kind of stuff and vulnerability and I, and I said, who, who feels robust right now? And it was the first day back, right? So there was, there was no children back at school. 
and not one person put their hand up. Mm. And the head literally put their head in their hands. And I and I had to mop up what I had just opened up mm. because I hadn't I hadn't expected this room of well, there must have been 40 all evenly spaced out throughout a great big room. Uh, so I, I rephrased it and I kind of uh, I rephrased it and, and asked a different question and got a slightly better answer. Mm. But I think it was a moment where we all just looked at each other and we might know that uh, the vulnerability of people working in schools was quite uh, prevalent um, working on the basis that vulnerability and robustness are the same coin. We're moving in and out of both of those, then mm. neither static. But actually that was a visual representation of vulnerability that just kind of stunned the whole, the mm. whole space. And you're right, you know, all, all of the approaches, all of the discussions, all of the conversations, all of the literature, anything to do with being trauma-informed is about um, organisational um, organizational trauma-informed environments yeah. and, and teams and ways of being and how you build that in. Um, and I think... I think you're right. We are, we have got an opportunity. We really do have an opportunity because what's happened is people who have children who haven't had difficulties in school, mm. have children crying, not wanting to go into school, have had children frightened, highly alert because they're worried about passing it on or catching it or whatever yeah. it is standing too close or standing too far those kind of discussions that are actually about um a whole range of different things are, have been in in everybody's household and that has while we've not all shared you know the same boat in this storm mm. there are themes that have cut across in ways that those of us who've been working on this for a long time have perhaps not been able to cut into yeah 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 there's um you know some young people i think the uh i learned quite early on to remember how individualized the response has been to each young person to their family and their context um it was um easy to go into sort of just grouping young people together um but once you started to kind of unpick you really started to see you know yeah that there are young people who have completely surprised us with their capacity to take this in their stride and others where it wouldn't have been what we expected and and that's that was something I really picked up on really quite early that we, we can't make generalizations here it, it's really really unique to those those children and, and their experiences and of course it goes far beyond those who are just currently looked after or those who were previously looked after it was a a collective mm. um experience and you know and and how I think I've seen 
amazing examples of how schools are um, putting in place that recovery curr curriculum and making it really, really individualised to, to those um, young people. And hopefully, hopefully we can maintain, you know, it's like, right, what can we keep from this that we need to keep? You know, what can we leave behind? Because no, we, we can leave behind the frenetic pace and we can leave behind, you know, back-to-back -back Zoom meetings and surely, you know, come together face-to-face. -to -face. But there's definitely something here that we've got to, to take forward. And I can see that the role of a virtual school head will be seeking to influence HMI and Ofsted and the accountability framework um, to talk to, you know, to the department and to those who um, who work around um, behaviour policy, those kinds of, you know, we need, as you know, as the National Association and individual members need to be influencing national policymakers about this opportunity because we can only hope this is once in a life, you know, this is not something we ever want to go through again. What can we take from this as the as the opportunity going and if forward? We get, we get those whole school approaches right, then that supports and helps every child. Yeah. You know, that really, that really is the key message. Yeah. Uh, and so really where now what have we got what is 2021 looks like I mean I know you don't know the answer to that because nobody knows the answer to that but what is in your what is in your diary you know what is in your agenda what are you focused on um uh, I think I'm I'm focused I'm really focused on um all of the the things we've touched on around um being able to create communities of schools and professionals and carers and social workers who are really, really deeply informed by the impact of those, you know, uh, it's the, the words trauma and attachment, you know, we, we bandy them around. Um, but I, I've recently commissioned um, a seven-day programme for a massively diverse group of practitioners in Leeds. So we've got our SEN inclusion team, the museum and galleries, education, learning and access people, the police, the care leader service, residential uh, home managers. Um, because I really feel that um, the findings, first findings from the Timpson research, and, and I share this at the Attachment Research Community, just had a conference recently, that getting the training is only the start of the journey. And that's where I feel that I'm at myself still. Um, and what I want to do is to do is is absolutely everything. It's aligned to the, the purpose of the National Association of Virtual School, is if we can really harness that groundswell that appetite to get into this work that's where we can realize some real change in schools and whole school approaches and we've uh, uh, it's resonated with the schools who've done that training already they're coming back to us to say oh my goodness now we've done the training it's like that they've suddenly seen the potential and now they want help to turn that into um, actual practice within their own 
school. So it really is an absolute top priority for for me, for, for lots of other virtual school heads. And we are reaching not just the cohorts who are strictly speaking within our statutory um, remit. Um, and I guess the other, you know, there are some really pragmatic things as well around what 2021 holds is there's still for me a lot of uncertainty for those young people in year 11 and year 13 you know to only find out as a school to only find out this week that there have been some adaptations to GCSE and uh, exams in year 13 you know it's it, it, it's as a school you know as as school leaders um you know, how do you support your young people to have confidence that they can achieve? And and the children that I'm responsible for find it difficult at the best of times to believe that they're going to succeed, that they're going to realise their potential. And this constant sort of context of uncertainty and a lack of clarity is something that is, I think we've got to think of ways that we can talk to the department but the operationally it's about how do I support those young people navigate the next six months and see them into the next stage of their learning journey in in that context of so much yeah that's uncertain. Jancis Andrew thank you so much for coming on the podcast and I'm sure lots of people certainly if they didn't understand virtual schools certainly understand it now so thank you so much for coming. You're really welcome Lisa thanks so much have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you.